Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. I'm Eric Mowry. I'm one of the ruling elders here at New Life. And children, while I didn't lead the children's church portion this morning, I wanted to say it's such a joy to have you fellowshipping with us, to have you in our congregation and to be able to sit and share the word of God with you. This message is also for you. Um, In 1575, Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester, welcomed Queen Elizabeth I to his castle in the western region of England. And there he held a feast in hopes of courting the queen in marriage. He had been attempting to marry the queen for about 15 years. And this was kind of a final attempt to hopefully gain her approval. The details of the feast were documented by one of the attendees in a booklet called The Princely Pleasures. This feast is considered one of the most notable meals in history. And it's not because the queen said yes and in so doing changed the course of history. In fact, they were never to marry Instead, it's notable because it lasted three weeks long. A feast from July 9th to July 27th, 1575, Robert Dudley courting the queen with the hopes of marriage. I must say, that's my type of proposal. (laughs) A three-week feast. Everything about the feast was extravagant. Over 300 dishes were served. There were 10 stations that were set up contributing entertainment, including a station for poetry, for water dancing, for theater, for miming. The list goes on. All of the stations thematically structured to praise the queen for her brilliance, providing storied history of England and her place in it. There is something enchanting about extravagance, isn't there? But often it is not extravagance alone that mystifies. Typically, it is modesty in the midst of majesty. Extravagance in the context of humble circumstance. This is the stuff of fairy tales. The ascent of a modest maid who becomes the true love of the crown prince, or the ascent of a child who's living in the streets, 
to become himself a just and noble king. Yet the juxtaposition of the majestic and the modest, the sublime and the simple, the extraordinary and the ordinary is not a theme in fairy tales alone. We see it in human history. In fact, we see it expressly in scripture. Consider these words. God creates image bearers, extravagant, but he does it from dust, ordinary. God calls Israel his own child, extravagant, but he does it while Israel is a slave in Egypt, ordinary. God calls prophets to speak forth his word, his very word, extravagant. Yet they are rejected of men, ordinary. There is no clearer picture in the, of the marriage of the ordinary and the extraordinary than in our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the eternal Son of God, yet born of a woman in poverty. He is the exalted Lord of heaven and earth, yet a humble servant of men. He was the sinless, righteous, and holy one, yet he was crucified as a criminal. He is building for us a room in heaven, yet on earth he had no place to lay his head. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, yet he is the slain lamb, the sacrifice of God. He is the express image of the eternal glory of God. Yet we look at him, despised, rejected, forsaken. Majesty and humility, the extraordinary and the ordinary. Today we are gonna focus our attention not on a meal that took place in a castle with royalty, but instead, we're gonna look upon another meal, the Lord's meal, the meal that we're gonna participate in today. And we're gonna note that it is remarkable, both in the way that it is ordinary and in the way that it is extraordinary. Our scripture today is from 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34. Please stand with me this morning for the reading of God's word. Verse 
I'm sorry, I don't recall what page it's on in the Bibles there, but if you didn't bring a Bible in the chair in front of you, there should be one available. And we're in 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. And let us bow our heads in prayer. Our Father in heaven, you are holy, holy, holy. We look to you. We need you. May the words on my lips and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Please, Father, 
as we hear the weather pounding on the roof, let us also, may you open your heavens to us and pour out your Holy Spirit upon us that we would know your presence with us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, our Savior. Amen. I guess I should remember this. <laughs> I could have got through the whole sermon without remembering the PowerPoint here. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are going to consider this passage under two primary headings today, the ordinary in the Lord's Supper and the extraordinary in the Lord's Supper. So first, we're going to consider the ordinary in the Lord's Supper. And we're going to begin something that, not too flashy, but these are ordinary people with ordinary problems in Corinth. So to begin, we're gonna provide a little background about 1 Corinthians to help situate us in our text. The letter of 1 Corinthians begins with Paul noting that he's heard report from Chloe's house about the church of Corinth. We see that in chapter one, verse 11. Paul said he's received word from Chloe's house about a report, from the church, about a report of the church. And this report provides much of the occasion for Paul's writing. So he writes actually to particular circumstances that have been reported to him. Previously, Paul had been in Corinth for 18 months when he planted the church there during his second missionary journey. And at this time, he's in Ephesus. He's heard word of the church. And unfortunately, the word that he has heard of the church of Corinth is not positive. The people were stirring up controversies, causing divisions, status seemed to be very important in the city of Corinth. And the people had brought that idea of status into the church. Some would say, I follow Paul. Others would say, I follow Apollos. Still others, I follow Cephas, that is Peter. And others, I follow Christ. So the Corinthians have the ordinary problem of setting up divisions among themselves. Paul spends about four chapters on that topic alone. And in some ways, really, he doesn't depart from it, as we'll see as we progress through the book. Paul moves from there to say, not only are you boasting in men, Corinthians, but there's rumor that some of you are boasting of sexual immorality. Oh, and along with that, there are lawsuits that are taking place in your midst among church members. And there's also some confusion about members having meals that are sacrificed to false gods, to idols. And eventually Paul addresses divisions set up by people 
who are enthralled with charisma and the special status of spiritual gifts. And while it's beyond the scope of today's sermon to discuss much of these details, we can at least note that this church in Corinth is a mixed company of ordinary people and they have ordinary problems. And these ordinary problems surface for us in another context as well. They surface for us in an ordinary context of a meal. This brings us to our text, that's chapter 11, verse 17, where Paul instructs, there he begins his instruction of the people on the Lord's Supper. And we see that in the first few verses, he continues to identify these sins in the congregation. Verse 18, when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. Verse 21, for an eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. And then in verse 22, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? It seems that the biggest problem for the Corinthians is that they spend time dividing themselves based upon very earthly matters. The wealthy keep distant from the poor. Some people were enthralled with charisma and clamor after particular leaders. Others try to judge whose spiritual gifts are the best. The list goes on. They were sinners, enamored with ordinary things. And Paul looks at it, and he makes really two scathing statements about it in the context of the Lord's Supper. In verse 17, he states that when they come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. And in verse 20, when they have this meal, it is not the Lord's Supper that they eat. What an indictment that when you gather for worship, you leave worse off. Brothers and sisters in Christ at New Life Presbyterian Church, we should probably ask ourselves if there are divisions among us. Have we divided ourselves on earthly matters and forgotten our belonging to one another in Jesus Christ? Maybe some relevant questions we could ask are, how do we relate to one another when we're here at church? Are there those that we intentionally avoid rubbing shoulders with? Maybe the fractures are more subtle. 
Maybe it's the type where you leave the church and in the car on the way home, you decide to talk to your spouse about so-and-so. Or you go to lunch with friends and you talk about this person and that person. Sometimes very little things can divide us. In fact, isn't it the case, friends, that it's so easy to care so much about so little? We see it here in Corinth. Heaven belongs to them. The Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, has given himself for them. Yet they quibble. What an incredible question Paul asks us in verse 22. Do you despise the church of God? We should probably search our own hearts with that question as well. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 11 to 13, Paul makes a remarkable statement that may be helpful for us here. He's expressing his love for the church and his work. And he says, Corinthians, we have spoken freely to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, widen your hearts also. New Life Presbyterian Church is your heart open to one another. Widen your hearts also. In some ways it's fitting that this whole discussion of divisions in the church unfolds in the context of a meal. Such an ordinary thing even the most ordinary and earthly of contexts, even in a meal, it's just a simple display of unity, sitting with one another, talking with one another, sharing food with one another. But do you see the solution that Paul offers to us? He doesn't say, go fix the ordinary things. He doesn't say the wealthy should provide a meal for the poor. He doesn't say make sure when you come together sit with someone you don't know. He doesn't say next time what are you doing? Make more food. Bring more drink. Put the serving table out in the middle. And he doesn't say, BYOB, everybody here, bring your own. In fact, he says nearly the opposite. He says something peculiar there in verse 34. He says, wait for one another, and if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. 
Isn't that odd? I've been blessed to have very good friends in my life that will occasionally invite me over for dinner. You know what I've never heard? Don't come hungry. That may be good advice (laughs) for my friends out there. (laughs) I assume there's a proverb somewhere, a modern day proverb that says something like a hungry Eric Mowry could empty your fridge (laughs) and your cupboard. (laughs) Why is this an admonition from Paul? If you're hungry, eat at home. What kind of supper is this after all? And then he says the meal consists of two elements, bread and the cup. Ordinary bread and a couple crushed grapes. How is that a supper? And they're not magic. And they're not transformed elements. But they're a sign to us of something else. Paul, in effect, is saying, Church of God, this meal, it's not like any other meal you've ever had. If you're here to fill your belly, you're here for the wrong reason. If you're concerned with the flavors, make something savory at home. This isn't a table concerned with physical hunger. And you shouldn't come here to satisfy physical hunger. Instead, Paul directs them to consider what is extraordinary about the Lord's Supper. And maybe just to sum it up, if you look at verse 29, Paul says, when you come to the table to discern the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. That in sum is his answer. And this brings us to our main point of the sermon, the extraordinary in the Lord's Supper. You can imagine that when Paul started the church in Corinth, when people were placing their faith in the Lord Jesus, when he had appointed elders and had introduced to them the Lord's Supper, that he gave them this same message. In fact, he says he has already delivered this message to them. We see it there in verses 23 through 26. Look there with me. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we consider the extraordinary in the Lord's Supper, it will be helpful for us to consider the context of the meal itself. So we have this point, the context of the extraordinary. Earlier we noted that the context is ordinary. The context is ordinary, it's just a meal. Here's Jesus sitting around the table with his disciples, but it's also extraordinary, it is a Passover meal. And along with that, we read these words about that evening. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed. This is the night of his betrayal. The eve of his crucifixion. On that same night, John tells us that Jesus loved his disciples and that he washed their feet for them and that he told them about the coming of the promised Holy Spirit. Mark tells us that Jesus sang a hymn with them. Luke tells us Jesus taught them that he was among them as a servant one who would serve them. Here is our Lord, full of compassion, and it's this night he is betrayed. Corinthian church and new life, do you have divisions among you? Consider your betrayed savior. There is another context here though. There is a context of the evening itself, yes. But there is a context within redemptive history that is itself extraordinary. We see it when Jesus mentions the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do you see that word there, covenant? This word, if you're unfamiliar, has been a theme to us since the very beginning of the story of history. In fact, God's relationship with Adam is called a covenant in Hosea 6. Later in Genesis, God makes covenant with Abraham And the primary content, there's quite a bit of content there, but the primary content of God's covenant with Abraham can be summed up with the words of God saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. We see again a covenant established with Moses and Israel in the giving of the law and the setting up of the priesthood. And again, a covenant with David as he will have a son on the throne with an everlasting kingdom. And Jesus sits at table with the disciples and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. A remarkable thing though, Christian, 
is that all those other covenants were pointing us forward to this moment. This covenant fulfills all of the others. It is Jesus Christ himself who is our second Adam. He himself is our better priest, our better prophet. He himself is the king eternal, sitting on the throne of David. And through him, God is our God, and we are his people. Christian, do you ever doubt that you belong to Jesus. One of the reasons he has given to us this supper is to encourage our faith. This is a meal that testifies from God to us that we belong to him. The Lord passes this cup to you, church of God. This is your cup to sip. It is a sign to you that Jesus Christ binds himself to you in covenant. Friends, there's no other meal like it. But there are other encouragements in this meal as well. You know, Matthew's gospel adds another encouragement to us when talking about this cup being the new covenant in his blood. He adds an explanatory clause. He says, the new covenant, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Do you doubt, brothers and sisters? It's like Jesus is saying, remember, remember, it's my blood for your sins. Remember, it is my body that is broken for you. That's the way this covenant works. I save you. I forgive you. You don't bring the food to this meal. It's provided for you. Friends, do you know what else is amazing in this meal though? We have an extraordinary fellowship in the Lord's Supper. We serve a living Savior. Our coming to the table is filled with remembering, but it is not the memory of a dead or distant person. Our Savior is alive. He is with us by his Holy Spirit. And as surely as we look to him by faith, he himself 
looks upon us. There is another extraordinary word that Paul mentions when talking about the Lord's Supper, but it's actually in chapter 10, verse 16. So for those of you with the Bible open, you could flip there. This is actually in the context of Paul answering the question of food um, sacrificed to idols that had come up there in the Corinthian church. But Paul, for a moment, turns his attention to the Lord's Supper. And he says this, this, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The word there, participation, it is the same word that is translated, translated fellowship or sometimes communion. The cup is fellowship with the blood of Christ. The bread is communion with the body of Christ. At the supper, there is not mere remembrance. There is also communion with our living Savior. He nourishes us for our journey. As food gives health and strength for daily life, so spiritually, Jesus strengthens us with his body and with his blood. A pastor from Scotland who lived in the late 1500s, early 1600s, named Robert Bruce, preached a handful of remarkable sermons on the Lord's Supper. And to be quite honest, he's put it better than I ever could. Here are a few of his quotes. The first, the minister gives the earthly thing, that is the bread and the cup. Christ Jesus, the mediator, gives the heavenly thing in the sacrament. You see, brothers and sisters, while you receive the bread and the cup from the elders, Jesus spiritually nourishes you with the heavenly thing, his body, his blood. And then the second quote, you may be quite sure that if you are faithful, Christ is as busy working inwardly in your soul as the minister is working outwardly in regard to your body. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, actively ministers to our souls even now in heaven. Isn't that amazing? If you are to have any encouragement of faith, it will be because of our intercessor, Jesus Christ. He is caring for our souls. It is the Father's pleasure to glorify the Son in us. And it is the Holy Spirit's work to bring us into active participation and fellowship with our holy God. And here at the Lord's Supper, with ordinary things, God is busy at work caring for us, nourishing us, strengthening us.
for our spiritual journey. He is such a good father to his children. Just one last thing here this morning. Finally, we have an extraordinary testimony. Earlier, I noted that in this meal, God testifies to us. But one of the other things it enables is for us to testify to one another. Friends, do you ever wonder what actions, what actions show the gospel? And maybe you wonder this in daily life and you think things like, well, if I gave away all I had to the poor, that might show the gospel. Or if I gave up my life in sacrifice, that might show the gospel. Do you know what's interesting? Those are the very things that Paul in chapter 13 of Corinthians says are worth nothing without love. So are there actions that we know speak? Are there actions that proclaim the gospel? Look with me there at chapter 11, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You may not be a preacher or a teacher or a gifted evangelist, but all Christians get to participate in this proclamation. When you eat this bread, when you drink this cup, you proclaim his death. This is why the divisions in Corinth were so foul. In this supper, God testifies to us that we are reconciled to him by Jesus Christ. And we testify to one another with these actions that we have communion with God. We proclaim a God that we have fellowship with, that we have communion with, that we are united with. And if that is our message, how can we let trivial, menial, earthly things divide us? Such modest things, brothers and sisters in Christ, bread and wine, such a majestic savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow and praise him in prayer and come to the supper and discern the body. Father, we praise you for this great gospel that you have given to us. It is a great joy, Lord, to be able to speak your word. And Father, I pray that by your grace, you would continue to grow in our hearts faith as we come to the supper. Let us praise you worthily. Let us look to you in awe. You are a wonderful God. And Jesus, you are our wonderful Savior.
Holy Spirit be with us now.